1: with me if you will please to Philippians chapter 2 and um, there's a lot of different things that are tempting to preach on on a day like today and a lot of different things that I was uh, very serious in looking at and praying through and what I should talk about. The philosopher in me I suppose thinks that maybe this is the time to be profound in some way Um, but that's not at all what I want to do today and uh, or at least not no profundity in terms of philosophical profundity. Instead, I want to talk to you today just about what I think is absolutely most essential and most important in your life, and that is your walk with God, your walk with Christ. So, Philippians chapter 2, I'll say more, much more about this, obviously, in just a few moments. I'm going to focus in on verse number 1 through verse number 4, but I'd actually like to go back... And start reading in chapter 1. And I've wrestled with it all morning long. I could go back really all the way to the beginning, but I won't. Let's just start in verse number 19. I've got to start somewhere. So let's start here. Chapter 1, verse 19, and we'll sort of build into chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. And may we, as his people this morning, as we listen and as we read and as we consider the scriptures together this morning, may we listen with a hunger and with an expectation that God might speak to our hearts, that he might strengthen our souls, that he might make us more faithful to him as a result of hearing his word together this morning. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified, in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain but if I live on in the flesh this will mean fruit from my labor yet what shall I choose I cannot tell for I'm hard pressed between the two having a desire to depart and be with Christ which is far better Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which I saw you saw in me and now here is in me. And our text here this morning, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one a mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let's pray together one more time. God in heaven, you alone are great. Lord, we are not. We sit, we stand before you here this morning as your children by the blood of your son. Lord, my only desire here this morning for myself and for our students, for those who I might, by your grace, have some small degree of influence over, that God, you might implant within us an urgency to really learn to live out what your word has commanded us here, and that God, when all is said and all is done, that we would simply be a people that's faithful to you, finding our hope and our love and our strength in you. We love you. We give ourselves to you. We ask you to bless what we do here today. I pray that, God, you would give me accuracy and precision with your word as we consider it together for just a few moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I want to talk to you again today about, essentially, the most important thing in your whole life and your existence, and that is your walk with God. I've noticed over the years, and There's a lot of different things that can be important to a person at different phases of their life. But the older I get and the longer I walk with Jesus and serve in this context, I've been around Southeastern for about 15 years now. I've noticed that there's a lot of different things in this world that vie for our attention, that the enemy uses to try to offset us, to distract us, or to destroy us. I'm reminded of what Jesus says, that the enemy comes to steal to kill, and to destroy, and of what Peter said, that our adversary is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. In short, the devil has a lot of different schemes and a lot of different methods and a lot of different plans to debunk you, to destroy you, and to make your life a massive waste of time. It comes in a wide variety of shapes and forms. It can come with moral failures. I've watched, and there's nobody in this room today, or nobody listening to this today, that's immune to this type of possibility. But I've watched some of my professors, I've watched some of my peers. I've watched some of my fellow students when I was in seminary and when I was in college. And now I've watched some of my very own students. I've watched people make moral failures that absolutely destroy their potential to serve Christ in a meaningful way. But even worse than that, to destroy (coughs) their own lives and the lives of the people around them that they love. I've watched people grow cold in faith I've watched people get hurt and mishandle things in church and ruin their ministry. And now we live in a context where the hostilities against Christ and against Christianity, those of us who are trying to be faithful to Christ, the hostilities against us seem to be mounting with time. And so in short, I actually stand here today with a greater burden and a greater fear for myself and for you than maybe I've ever had. Because I realize the older I get, the more sober-minded I become and realize that there's so many different pitfalls out there that I could fall into, that you could fall into, and that we together might shame the name of Christ with. And at the same time, while I've never been more fearful, I'm at the same time, I've never been more confident. Not confident in me at all, far be it from that, but confident in Christ. That he is enough to keep me. He is enough to preserve me. He is enough to help me honor him with my life. And so that's why I turned to Philippians chapter 2 here today. I read chapter 1 to kind of set up the context to you. Let Let me be very clear. I understand that the context at the church of Philippi is different from our context today. Obviously, they're going through persecution Paul mentions this starting verse number 27, going through verse number 30. They are being persecuted in a variety of ways. He returns to this in chapter three. So there's different kinds of persecution that they're facing that we today sitting here in this chapel may not necessarily be facing. But some of you may go to those places. Some of you may go to those places where your life is in danger. Some of you may go to those places where you're in jeopardy constantly. Or it may be the case that you have loved ones that are in those situations. Either way... The enemy has a lot of different tactics, schemes to offset us and cause us to fall away. So, the question is how do we persevere? How do we we go about being faithful? In short, I think the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 is just pointing us to Christ and saying, Christ himself is enough. Now, what is it about Christ? Let me just notice several things about what Paul says about Christ in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, and I'll bleed over into verse number 5 through 11 in just a moment. But Paul mentions several things. First of all, notice with me in number one, Paul mentions Christ as our great comfort. Now, the command that he's about to give them comes in verse 2, and then again in verses 3 and 4. So there's two commands that are coming. But before he gives them the command in, chapter, in verse number 2, that is to fulfill his joy, he first draws their attention to something about Christ. He says to them, therefore, if there is any consolation... In Christ, any comfort and love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, then the command comes in verse number two. What is it that Paul's saying? Paul is reminding them with these sort of hypothetical statements. The word if there can almost denote an uncertainty like, well, if there's any of this, but that's surely not what he means. We could perhaps better translate this as saying assuming that there is consolation in Christ, assuming that there is comfort of love, assuming that there's fellowship in the Spirit, and assuming that we find affection and mercy in Christ. Assuming those things or because we have those things in Christ. And so what Paul is doing here before he gives gives them the commands that he's about to give them He first draws their attention to remind them of who and what they have in Jesus Christ. And so let's consider those statements there. And there's some overlap in those statements, but Paul mentions these four things. First of all, he says, if there's any encouragement. Now, what in the world does this mean? It means simply this. And when you find yourself in these circumstances, when you find yourself in these difficulties, what do you do? Where do you turn to? Christ. Why? Because there is, in fact, encouragement in him. So if there's any encouragement in him, and there is, if there's any comfort in his love, comfort in knowing the fact that no no matter what circumstances I might face, Christ is there with me, knowing that Christ loves me no matter what. He mentions, again, the comfort of his love. He mentions the fellowship of his spirit. If there's anything in Christ that gives us this encouragement and this comfort, but also the fellowship with him, his spirit, and fellowship with his people. And then lastly, if there's any affection and any mercy, because we have these things in Christ, the commands he's about to give will follow. Paul is simply reminding these believers that in the midst of conflict, in the midst of difficulty, or in our context, maybe more specifically, in the midst of temptation, when we find ourselves there, we are to remember what we have in Christ and who we have in Christ Paul would say it this way just a chapter later. Chapter 3, verse number 7 through 10. You can flip there and read if you'd like to, or I'll just read it to you. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 7 through 10. Listen to what Paul says. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul, throughout the book of Philippians, is going to remind the church of Philippi just what they have in Jesus and just who they are in Jesus. I'm reminded also of Isaiah chapter 55, verse number 1 through verse number 2. And I'm told that many of the points that Paul's making in the book of Philippians, he's drawing on Isaiah chapter 55 is sort of this backdrop. Isaiah says it this way. Woe, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. We find in the book of Philippians and we also find throughout the Old Testament this idea of drawing our our satisfaction from Christ himself. And Paul reminds us of this in verse number one. Because we have comfort in Christ. Because we have consolation fellowship in his spirit, affection and mercy. And so I think that this forces us to ask ourselves some honest questions here this morning. What is it that you ultimately look to, to sustain you, to satisfy you, to encourage you, to bless you? What is the thing that you draw near to when you find yourself in need? And I know that we would say, we'd probably give the, the Sunday school answer here this morning, and we'd say, oh yeah, I draw near to Jesus or something like that. But let's be honest with ourselves. How easy it is for us to fall into the rut of finding ourselves looking for all kinds of other things like attention, like fame, like praise, like power, like our legacy, like money, like scholarly achievement faculty, like sex. What is it that we look to? If I can just be honest and transparent with you. So I, again, I've been here for 15 years I got saved almost 20 years ago. I was 18 years old, I heard the gospel. I'd heard the gospel a whole lot of other times, but this time I actually heard the gospel. And as I heard the gospel, it broke me down. I fell passionately in love with Jesus Christ. I began journaling every day about my walk and my struggle with God. I was d- documenting different things that I was dealing with, different temptations, different pressures, and I would write about these things every single day. At the end of about a year of journaling, I, for some reason, opened up back to the beginning of that journal. And as I opened up back to the beginning of that journal, I noticed some of the things I had written in the first couple days that I started journaling. And again, I'm, I'm a couple days old in Jesus Christ at this moment when I start journaling. And as I read those things that I had written as a two- or three-day-year-old Christian, I, I was a little ashamed I was a little embarrassed because I was saying things that were rather silly, that were biblically incorrect, that theologically were not all that great. And I'd, I'd been studying the Bible and studying theology for a year now, so I'd learned a whole bunch of stuff. And I was going back on some of the earlier things I'd written, and I was beginning to think of myself, man, how childish and how silly and how petty that I would think that way. And by this point, a year in, it's pretty clear to me now that I'm going to go off to a Bible college. I'll probably go off to a seminary. I'm going to get a theological education. And then all of a sudden, this deep, deep fear hit me. What am I going to think 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, of what I've been writing here as an 18-year-old Christian? I'll probably be so theologically informed at that point that I'll be ashamed of this drivel that I find. And so I did something. I stopped journaling. And I'm not, the point of today is not to say, hey, you should be journaling. No, 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 no. I want you to see something in my own life. I stopped because I was so afraid of the later theological snobbery that would consume me. We moved a couple years ago over just a couple blocks from here. And you know when you move, you pack up everything, you put things in the attic, you, put, you throw things away, you're going through all this stuff. I'm up in the attic going through some boxes and I stumble upon this little journal. And I picked it up and I have to say, I was cut. I was afraid. I was like, oh no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this thing. Do I even open it up? Do I dare? I had that worry because, man, now I've, I've really grown up. I mean, it's 20 years in. I've been a pastor for 10 years. I've got a PhD. I'm working on another one. I'm a professor, for crying out loud. Am I going to be ashamed of everything that I said? And so I sat down with a little bit of fear and trembling, and I opened back up to the thoughts, to read the thoughts that I had written about my walk with Christ when I was 18 years old, expecting to be ashamed of how trivial I thought and how theologically uninformed I was. And I was ashamed, all right, as I read. But I wasn't ashamed because of how uninformed I was theologically. Yeah, it's true. I was naive in some ways. And yeah, it was true. It was pretty obvious. I I didn't understand a few things. But what hit me was as I read those words that I had written some 18 years before as an 18-year-old kid, There was a rawness there, a fire there, an urgency there, a love for Christ that was there, a struggling with my sin that was there, a begging of God, would you please help me in my life to live this out? And I was ashamed that that fire was no longer in me. And it hit me. It hit me. Yeah, I've been a pastor for 10 years, and yeah, I've been in ministry for these 18 years, and yeah, I'm a professor, and yeah, I have my degrees now, and yeah, I have all those things, but it hit me that I had become this professional Christian, and that's not much. And so repentance begins to follow and a returning back to remembering what I have in Jesus, that in him I find consolation and encouragement, in him I find comfort, in him I find affection and mercy. And Paul wants us to see that before he gives us those commands. And so I ask you, you know, I'm asking you this question this morning, what is it that you look to? Don't be like me. Whatever you do, don't be like I have been so often, the professional Christian that's hollow and stale. But rather, may we return to this and pursue Christ with great passion. Let me note second of all, verse number two. Verse number two, Paul also points to Christ as the great uniting love of the Christian. Now, it's a little odd what he's doing here, and it's subtle, so I'm going to do my dead-level best to try to make sense out of what Paul's saying here. But in verse number 2, this is the part of the passage where everybody says, see here, Paul's teaching unity, and he is. But hang on, there's something more going on. In verse number two, Paul's pointing to Christ, yes, as the thing that unites us, but he does so in a very particular way. He says this, fulfill my joy. Here's the command, in light of the fact that there's consolation in Christ, in light of the fact that there's comfort of love, in light of the fact that there's fellowship with him and affection and mercy, in light of what he says in verse number one, now the command is, fulfill my joy. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So yes, there is a call to unity here. But it's an interesting call to unity. I think the temptation is to read this text and say, you see here, Paul's telling us that we, we the church, need to be united. And so what does that look like? Well, we'd say, well, we just need to try to get along in churches and we need to put our petty preferences aside and do all those things. And let me say, yeah, I think all of those things are true, but I don't think that that's quite getting at what Paul's saying here. Remember that chapter 2 starts with the word, therefore. In other words, what he's about to say to us, this command he's about to give to us is linked back to what he's already said in chapter 1. Which is, by the way, why I started reading in chapter 1. It's linked back to this. Fulfill my joy. How? By being like-minded. What does that mean? Does that mean just like-minded with each other? Well, yeah, that's it at a minimum level. Yeah, that we'd be like-minded with each other. But I think what Paul's doing here is he's calling us to be like-minded with him. Like-minded with him in what respect? In the respect that he's been talking to us in chapter 1. And so let me me point to three different verses in chapter 1 that I think that Paul's getting back to. Chapter 1, verse 18. Remember what Paul says here? He says, what then? That in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. What is Paul saying? Well, in that passage, remember starting in verse 15, he said, you know, some people are preaching out of false pretense. And some people are preaching out of a pure heart. But who cares? All I care about is that Christ is preached. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the thing that's most supreme to him is that Christ be lifted up. That Christ be made supreme. In verse number 19 through verse number 21, Paul goes on to talk about how whether in life or whether in death, Christ is that which is absolutely supreme. Right? And that's why he'd say in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So whether I live or whether I die, I don't know. If I live, it is for Christ. If I die, it is for Christ. Right? Once again... Christ being supreme. In verse 27, look at what Paul says here. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right? So in other words, what Paul is saying throughout chapter 1 is, let it be Christ. Let it be Christ. Let everything about our life be Christ. And now he says in chapter 2, verse 2, fulfill my joy. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, that we would be united, not in the sense that we just get along at church and we put petty preferences away. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like unity is based off of our really good effort to be good with each other. But that's not it. Our unity is based off of the fact that we have a greater love than anything else, namely Christ. I'm reminded and I'm struck by something in the New Testament. In the Gospels, we have these stories about the disciples and who they are and what they're doing. And in each of the Gospels, they'll identify who the 12 disciples are and list them off. And we hear much about some of these people, but there's two that stand out to me, not because there's much said about them. In fact, what stands out to me about this is that there's little said about them. Two in particular, Matthew, the tax collector, who's, of course, the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And then another disciple named Simon, namely Simon the Zealot. Now, I don't know if you're picking up on this, but just those two descriptions right there ought to, ought to strike something in your mind Matthew, a tax collector, and Simon, a zealot. Now, what's the deal with those? Now, remember who zealots are. Zealots are a particular sect of the Jewish people that are political hostiles, if you will, they're absolute radicals. The zealots despised Rome. The zealots longed for God's kingdom to come when he would suppress the enemies of God and rule over them. And the zealots were these people that were constantly being very active, very radical, almost terroristic, if you will, at times. They hated anything to do with the Romans. Then you have Matthew, a Jew. He's also referred to as Levi in some places, who's also described as a tax collector. Now that's interesting. Here's a Jew that's collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. You know what's interesting about that? The zealots absolutely hate tax collectors. They hate the Romans, but they especially hate the tax collectors. Why? Because they're sellouts to their own people. What that means is, folks, is essentially these two men should have absolutely hated each other. And I contrast this. With stories in the gospel of two other people, James and John, who are constantly vying for superiority, obsessed with which of them is actually better, right? And those two are fighting and feuding about those things. But what strikes me is that we have Matthew and Simon, and yet the gospels seem to be silent about any conflict with them. Now, maybe there was conflict with them. There should have been, just looking at it on the surface in terms of human affairs, There should have been conflict between them, but the Gospels say nothing about this. Now, maybe, again, I'm making too much of it. Or maybe Simon and maybe Matthew found something in Christ that was big enough, good enough, lovely enough, sweet enough to put aside silly things. Maybe they understood what Paul was saying in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 15. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one. Dr. Keithley talked about this last week, about how Jews and Gentile, that division has been broken down. And the greatest of hostilities that we find on this earth are brought together as one in Christ himself. So maybe, maybe there's nothing to it. Or maybe there's something to it. That they found Christ and therefore they found something to unite them. Either way, Paul's saying to us in chapter 2, verse number 2, Fulfill his joy, how? By being like-minded. That's not a superficial unity here of just trying harder in the body of Christ to get along. It's a unity that's found as believers look up and fall in love with Christ. And there in that view we cannot help but stand linked arm in arm advancing his kingdom. Let me make one more point. I think that this is actually the biggest point of the whole text. Verse number 3 through verse number 4. Note that Paul also points us towards Christ who is our perfect model of everything. Christ is a model for us in the sense that he demonstrates humility for us. There's a command in verse number 3 and verse number 4. And the command is, humble yourself. Humble yourself before others. Listen to what he says. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others better than himself. Verse four, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. What's Paul saying to us? He's saying it's time to die. It's time to die to self, that is. That the Christian is someone who's marked by humility. The Christian is one who's marked by, by making himself low. And looking after other people. He's calling us to serve others and to be humble before others. Now what's interesting about this. The reason I say that he's pointing us to Christ as our perfect model. Is because he now follows this up with verse number 5 through 11. And I'm pretty sure that by now you're well aware of what's happening in verse number 5 through verse number 11. Verse number 5 through verse number 11 is what we refer to as the kenosis passage. It's that great passage that speaks of Christ lowering himself. I'll read it here in just a second. And we love around here in a place like this to nerd out at this moment, right? Because let's face it, we love theology. And what is it that we love in theology? We love our Christology. And amen and amen and amen. And let me be clear, there's a time and a place to nerd out over chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And talk about Christ being equal with God. And talk about Christ being made low with God. And derive theological lessons about Christ out of that. Sure, great, wonderful, yes. Yes. But that's not why Paul gives us this passage of Scripture. Verse 5, let this mind be in you. That's the point, right? He said it in verse number 3 and verse number 4. Humble yourself. Make yourself nothing. Look out for the interest of other people. Die to yourself and serve other people. You say, man, I don't know about that. And Paul says now, then you're not following Christ. Because we, believers, are to be the kind of people that are following Christ. We are to have the same mindset, the same disposition, the same approach to life that Christ Jesus himself had. And what does that look like? Well, again, verse 5 through 11, let this mind be in you. Let this be fleshed out in your life. Let this be manifest in your life, which was also in Christ. Now watch what he says. And again... Resist the urge to nerd out here on your Christology. There's a time and a place. But hear what you as a believer in Christ are being called upon to do. Christ who, verse 6, who being in the form of God. What does that mean? This is divinity that we speak of here. The second person of the Trinity, folks... The one who, according to John's gospel, brings all of us and all of this into existence. Who being in the very form of God, and he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Meaning, that's not why he made himself low. I mean, he had a legitimate claim to divinity, but verse 7. But he, Christ, made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And Paul is saying to me and Paul is saying to you, Paul is saying to followers of Jesus, you need to have this mindset. You need to have this disposition. You need to let this be fleshed out in you as it was demonstrated in Christ. This kind of humility. And, of course, verse 9, And therefore, because Christ does this, God has also highly exalted him, giving him the name that is above every name, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess. What is Paul saying to us? Yeah, he's teaching us something about Jesus. But he's teaching us something about Jesus for the purpose of us following Jesus. Right? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I don't know. I guess I'm pretty naive. I I tend to think that it means a follower is someone who goes where he goes. Who loves what he loves. Who is about what he is about. Who gives to what he gives to. And I think about my life, and yeah, there's credentials, and yeah, there's certain successes. But is that what my life looks like? Do I make myself lower, or do I make myself higher? In conversations with people, am I constantly talking about me as the center of attention, as the center of the conversation? Is it me, or is it them, right? Right? Is it my position that must be established? Is it my point that must be heard? Do I love my wife with this selflessness? Do I love my children with this selflessness? As a faculty member, do I love you, the students, the way that I must? Do I lower myself there? As a dean, do I lead As a servant, you see, these are the kinds of questions that should be flooding my mind constantly as I hear verse 5 let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And there are abundant types of questions for you as well. So let me close here today with just a couple questions for you to consider. Number one, who or what is your ultimate consolation? Is it something else? It's easy to give the Sunday school answer and say, oh no, man, it's Jesus, but be honest. And you know what? There's going to be a lot of times when it's not Christ. And there's a simple thing that must be done. Repent. Turn back. Let Christ be the greatest treasure of all. Secondly, what is it that you love? What is it that you love? Is it the idea of greatness in ministry? Because I have to admit to you, I fear sometimes for us Southeastern, that we come here, we see images of greatness, we see Russ Moore, we see Danny Aiken, we see all these things, and therefore we draw the impression that what we really need to do is start a blog and start, get a big Twitter following and doing all those things. But you know what? There's some people here that your ministry is probably going to look like that, but for the vast majority of it, that's not you. Is Christ enough for you? Is that what you love? Is that what drives And then lastly, who do you serve? Yourself? Someone else? What Paul's doing here in this text is he seems to be concerned for the church at Philippi because they're going to be persecuted, they're going to face hardship. And I know our circumstances are different, but I have similar concerns for us today. How will we hold up? Will we be faithful? Or will we look to Christ and remember what we have in him, love him, and follow him? Father, thank you for your goodness. I ask that you might bless the rest of our time today as we go from here, that you might help us to be mindful of these things, but also many other things that we will be confronted with from your word today. Lord, on the whole, I simply pray that God, you'd help us to be faithful. We do love you. We praise you. We give ourselves to you today. And we ask that you would work in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. For his sake.
0: Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary.